Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Today, we will go back up into the Salt and Light attic and bring down some of our favorite conversations from the fall of 2015. First, author Chris Stepien tells us about how he imagines 12-year-old Jesus' adventure in Jerusalem. And we meet singer-songwriter Ed Balduck. In our second half hour, we go back to December 2015 when Pope Francis was in East Africa and learn a bit about the church in Kenya. And at the end of the program, we catch up with Audrey Assad, who has a new album now in early 2016. We begin now with The Search for the Boy Messiah. In the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we are told that Jesus was lost in the temple for three days when he traveled to Jerusalem for Passover when he was 12 years old. All we get are 12 verses. But what really happened? Why did he stay behind? Where did he stay? Now, I love it when people help bring gospel stories to life. And this is exactly what author and journalist Chris Stepien has done with his novel, Three Days, The Search for the Boy Messiah. Ever wonder what really happened in Jerusalem when he was 12 years old? I'm now joined by Chris Stepien to tell us all about it. Chris, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Oh, it's a pleasure to join you, Deacon Pedro. So, um, before we go into kind of some specifics of the story, why, why take that particular, those 12 verses, and, I mean, I, I can imagine that you're, you read them and your imagination is going, and next thing you know, there's, there's a larger story coming up. But is that what happened? Well, actually, it came to me through my prayer life. Um, uh-huh. I had gone through some tough times a little more than 10 years ago, and, um, you know, life brought me to my knees. And so being Catholic uh, and having reached my limit, I reached for my rosary, and I turned to Mary, the mother of God, and I said, listen, I'll say a decade of the rosary every day, but I need you to get me closer to your son. Pretty arrogant, huh? Uh -huh. But anyway, so I would contemplate these mysteries using the Ignatian spiritual exercises. And, you know, St. Iggy said, you know, pretend like a child to be in the story. And when I would come around to that fifth joyful mystery, the finding in the temple, I finally, as a father and and a husband and a father and, and now a grandfather, it really started to bother me. You know, when I was really contemplating what was going on, the journey during Passover down to Jerusalem from Nazareth, and then again, him being left behind, or why did he stay behind? And, yeah. And what went on for those three days? Where did he, you know, where did he sleep? What did he eat? Was he ever in any danger? Yeah. Slave trading was common back then. Right. And it started to bother me, and then a voice in my heart said, do something with this story. And being a television guy originally, I yeah. thought, oh, I'll write a screenplay. But I didn't know enough about the Times. Right. And then after I learned about the Times, there was too much for me to write a screenplay. <laughs> exactly. So I just said, I'm going to put it down as a novel, and, 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 and we'll see what happens. Maybe our, uh, one day a grandchild would read it. Yes. No. Uh, okay, so how do you go about writing... Uh, I have so many questions, but how do you go about writing uh, something about the life of Jesus? The because well, you're not writing a gospel. <laughs> yeah, well, well first of all, that? that's a great question, because I said right away, I can't, it's a novel, so I've got to write dialogue, and I can't speak for Jesus, because some people won't pick up the book. They'll say, well, this is not what he said. So yes. everything he says in the novel is a scriptural quote, okay, so, mostly Old Testament. Yeah, and I was going to ask you that. So 
you made that a conscious choice because you felt that you would not be able to do justice to actually put words in the mouth of Jesus. Right, because he's the, the, the way, the truth, and the life, and he's the truth, so I have to speak the truth, everything he had to say, and I'm taking a liberty as is, putting Old Testament quotes in what would be the right place, but I just trusted the Holy Spirit to guide me, because I felt the Holy Spirit was guiding me to write the book to begin with, because that voice that said, do something with this story, I actually heard it, I mean, in my head. It was, I looked up at the ceiling while praying and said, what? You know, what should I do? I mean, so I said, I've got to go with this and just trust it. Right. So so that's one thing that you did. You you make sure that every time that in the novel that we hear Jesus speaking, he's actually quoting scripture and as you said mostly uh Old Testament scripture. Um mm-hmm. what other things did you have to do? How much research did you have to do interview? You mentioned that slave trade was common in that time, so you had to find that out, I presume. Sure. Well, I I I have a good priestly friend, a scholarly uh priest, Father Joseph Marquis, and he tipped me on to a great book called Jesus and His Times, which okay. was published by the Reader's Digest Association in 1987. It's a pretty good resource for a common guy like me to read. And I had read The Maker's Diet, which is a, bi- which is a um, biblical diet um, to enhance you know, the quality of life, and, and that was written by a Ph.D., a Messianic Jew named Jordan Rubin. And, of uh-huh. course, I, as Pope Francis says, you know, the, the web is a gift from God, and yeah. it was a wonderful resource. I could look up all kinds of information about uh, the times of Jesus, including there's a great uh, Jewish encyclopedia that stopped publishing in 1906 that was a good source. And uh, anything I found on the web, of course, I double-checked with other sources like right. encyclopedias. So those old, dusty encyclopedias became valuable again um, to, to to find out what life was like back then. Because mm-hmm, you're, you, you're giving a lot of details, not just about... I mean, historically, what would have been happening at the time, but but uh, about uh, about ritual, what it was like to go into the temple, the the ritual baths, all that stuff. That I guess you have to get right because if you don't get it right, then it's just not true. Yeah, and I've had some Jewish friends read it, including a, a rabbi, and and they were cool with it. They they thought it was they 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 nodded their heads and they said, yeah, this is all that not, nothing bothered them, so I felt confident with that, that it would also touch an, an interfaith community. One of the things that was striking, Deacon, was the Passover, uh, the, the slaughter of the lambs and the kids. Yes, I mean, yes. thousands of them, so it changes your whole concept of what the of the Eucharist is, because yes. Jesus is now our Paschal Lamb, but on a single afternoon, they slaughtered Thousands, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of lambs and kid goats uh, for Passover. Yes, yes, I know. And again, that's what I meant when I uh, when I said at the beginning that I love it when when people help me bring those stories to life because you might just read twelve verses in Scripture and you kind of and we've heard them many times. Yeah, he got lost in the temple. Maybe don't think about it much until you reflect on it or maybe pray with it like you did, mm-hmm. and then to have someone say, "Well, no, Passover. This is what it meant, and this is what people did, and they." Th- slaughtered, I love the word slaughter, um, thousands of, of lambs or goats or whatever other animals they slaughtered, and that's a lot of blood and a lot of people, and you understand why the, the temple was a marketplace. Um, you understand Jerusalem as a, as a trade center full of people, not just Jews, but people from all over the place. Um, that's a lot, of, a lot of detail. Would you say that this novel... Would you call this novel a historical novel? I would. I, yeah. I think uh, that would be journalistically accurate because I tried to make it historically accurate, and I also tried to make it realistic. I tried to come up with a very plausible reason as to why Jesus remained behind. Yeah, and I guess 
I'm not going to ask you to tell us because we want people to buy the book, right? Well, right, and and that because we know how it ends, right? Yes, we, we we know do. that his mom and dad find him, yes. and so that yeah, I think is the cliffhanger. Yes, and in your imagination, again, I'm not maybe we should say this this or that specifically, but in your imagination, why are Mary and Joseph not angry with this young man who did not come with well, them? Well, hail Mary, full of grace, you lost the <laughs> the Messiah. And Joseph, you will name your son Yeshua, which means salvation. Uh, that is Joseph, if you can find your son alive. Yeah. And so I think that they, they, they were, you know, right from the beginning, being the parents of the Messiah was challenging. He was yeah. born in a manger. Then they had to flee to Egypt. They, at the presentation, they went to take him to the presentation of the temple. He was like 38 days old. And Simeon says, yes, this is the Messiah. And oh, by the way, Mary, a sword will pierce your, yes. your soul, your heart. Yes. So there was constantly this dichotomy, this, this joy mixed with suffering, which, of course, we see on the cross, which culminates in the ultimate glory. But this is what it was like to be the parents of Jesus, the, mm-hmm. the, the boy Messiah. Right. And sometimes ordinary parents can feel that way about their children, uh, <laughs> joy I, mixed with yeah. sorrow. I think lots of families yeah. who can relate to this book. Yes, not not just sometimes, but mostly all the time. Um, <laughs> um, what is your hope for this book? How, how do you do? You think this is a book that that will help people in their prayer life, or it's just a fun novel to read with your kids? Um, how what is your hope for how people can use this book? My hope is that it can be part of the new evangelization to help people realize that Jesus was indeed human and divine. He sweated. He had probably had pimples. He didn't enjoy yes. doing his chores as a kid. He liked to play, he had a hobby, he had a favorite food. He was just like us in that way. He can understand our joys and our pains, and I hope that that will cause them to delve into the Gospels and say, you know, whenever I read this, I have to know more about the life and the times. Like when Jesus is with the Samaritan woman at the well. Why does he get her attention? Because he says, whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. She'd been schlepping water from that well her whole life. Yes. Even though it was a, a a lush area compared to the rest of the arid climate in the in ancient uh, Holy Land, yes. but she this was what that was a desert dweller's dream. Mm-hmm. So we, in the era of vitamin water and and you know filtered water on demand, we have to we put ourselves it, yeah. in Jesus's times to genuinely appreciate what he had to say, and in that way, the gospel can quench our thirst. Absolutely. So that's that's a good good advice that when we read scripture, we need to read it. Not just in a historical context, but there's also, you know, read it with a guide, get get some help so that you're not just reading stuff and then not understanding it. Um, there's lots of study guides out there to help you uh, understand scripture. Um, Chris, um, thank you so much. Uh, you're you, good, good, good storytelling. Thank you for doing this. Uh, I really thoroughly enjoyed reading the, the book. It, it's a great novel. Um, lots of little cliffhangers to keep you going, um, not just for young people, although it is for young people, but I, I think any adult will also enjoy this book as well. Um, thank you for sharing a little bit of what you do with us today, Chris. Thank you for the blessing to join you. God bless you. Chris Stepien is an accomplished and award-winning journalist who worked mainly for ABC. His first novel is Three Days, The Search for the Boy Messiah. It is published by dynamiccatholic.com. But you can find out more at theboymessiah.com. Here now is our featured Artist of the Week, Ed Bolduck, with a new song that he's written for the Year of Mercy, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. (laughs) 
There's a wideness in God's mercy Like the wideness of the sea There's a kindness in God's justice Which is more than liberty There is plentiful redemption In the blood that has been shed There is joy for all the members In the sorrows of the Ed Bolduck with There's a Wideness in God's Mercy, which is a new song that he wrote for the Year of Mercy. Like many liturgical composers of today, Ed Bolduck began writing liturgical music by writing music for the youth at his parish for the Life Teen Mass. Ed is the composer of the popular Mass of St. Anne 
and he's written many, many songs for liturgy. Ed has just written the new song that we just heard. There's a wideness in God's mercy to celebrate the year of mercy. And so I am very happy to welcome Ed Bolduck to our program today. Ed, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. So so you just, uh, before we went on, you said that Bolduck originally is a French-Canadian name, Bolduc. That's correct. Very cool. But so, And you said you have relatives in, in Canada. I do have a few relatives in Canada and some in Michigan as well. And they're French-Canadians. They speak French. That's, that was their origin, yes. Nice, yes. nice, but you don't. You don't, I, you don't I, get them into the French? I did take French in school, <laughs> um, but uh, I've lost a lot of it. <laughs> right. Well, good, good. It's nice. to. We'll, we'll make you an honorary Canadian <laughs> then. That's great. Um, do you, so, so you grew up, I guess you, you said you grew up in, in Michigan. Um, what was it like growing up? Was it a Catholic family? Yes, very much. Uh, I went to St. Aloysius Catholic School oh, yeah? in Michigan. And um, it was great. You know, we moved, and we moved to Ohio, and then I ended up going to St. Helens Catholic uh-huh. School, and until about sixth grade, and then after that, um, I was in public school. After that, that's very cool. We have a lot of listeners in Michigan and in Ohio. Um, do awesome. you um, lots of brothers and sisters? I have one sister. Okay, good. And and so you went to Catholic school. Was it at home? Was it kind of very Catholic, or was it kind of lukewarm? Oh yeah, um, yeah. my both my parents' families were very Catholic, and so you know, mass was was a regular weekly occurrence for us. Yeah. all the holy days, and um, I always enjoyed going to mass and listening to the music and singing, looking through the missalettes, and right. you know, always marveling at the songs that were in there, never expecting that one day I might get something in that there. That you'll so have your songs cool. in there. That that is, yeah. I'm not going to ask you about that too. But um, was it was it a musical household? Did you have to take piano lessons growing up? How was that? Um, it was a musical household. My dad uh, actually played accordion very often, really? and I loved to sit down and listen to him play. And uh, when I was 10 years old, when we were in Ohio, my parents just kind of threw the question out there, would you guys like to take piano lessons? And uh-huh. I'm like, yeah, okay. Huh. <laughs> and they bought a piano, and, and sure enough, uh, I loved it. just fell in love with it and took private lessons for a while and went to school and you know, just kept playing every day. Nice. And did you eventually play in church? As a teenager? I did. Yeah. I did. When we moved to Georgia, when uh-huh. I was 15, I joined, I joined the folk group. Right. And uh, that is where I really was, um, I got to be a big part of the liturgy by playing, you know, at the 1130 Mass on Sundays, and we did everything out of the Blue Glory and Praise books. I yes. Mean, that was, that's what we did. I learned them all, and it was just a, a wonderful experience, a wonderful group that I got to play with, and it was just great liturgy. People were singing, and it was very joy-filled, and it was just a great time. It was yeah. just a great time and a great initiation for me into that. So it sounds like you, you, you had pretty good church experiences. You didn't go through a period of time of doubting or not wanting to go to church or anything like that? Fortunately, no. Um, I've, really? I've always had a great church experience. My family has always been, um, you know, uh, very devoted Catholics, and I've always, been, I've always found myself in a community that's very strong and very welcoming and and uh, I've always wanted to be part of it. So, uh-huh. yeah, it's always been a great thing. So at that parish, once in Georgia, that's where you joined? Did you join Life Teen as a, as a teen? Actually, I was, in, I was going to college, and the okay. music director at the time um, was looking for a music person to lead music at the 6 p.m. Mass. And she knew that I was Catholic. She knew okay. um, that I did contemporary music, so she asked me. So that was in college? 
Yeah, it was it was 1992, I believe. Right. So then you were doing music for Life Teen, and is was that the first time that you started writing music, or had you been writing music all along? Well, that was the first time I started writing music for the church, uh-huh. um, anything religious. Really? Uh, it was we. You know, there was so much. Uh, there was there wasn't a lot of contemporary. Um, liturgical music out there, aside from yeah. what was in glory and, glory and praise. Yeah, that's true. And not like today, where it seems like every fifteen minutes there's a new song released. You yes, know? yes. And there's so many good songs that are released. So there was a time when we, you know, there wasn't a whole lot to draw from, and so I just started writing things to to fill out the liturgy and and you know doing what I could and uh, trying to make the best decisions I could make on the music and and uh, it's you know it just kind of went from there. Did you, did you stop? Because I, I guess so. It's, you said it's the first time that you wrote liturgical music. You had been writing, I guess, secular songs before. Did you continue writing secular, or did you, like, well, did you feel um, like you have like a career I, shift I, there? I guess like you could say I, I tried writing secular songs. You know, I, I grew up. I uh-huh. went to high school in the '80s, so it was the yeah. '80s love song ballads. You know, they're and great. So Come my, on, man! They I were did great. my share of writing those. <laughs> yeah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> You never the recorded real heavy, those. you know, heavy piano based, um, you know, ballads and that kind of thing. I did a bunch of that. Nice, um, but uh, not. It was when I, when I first started leading music at Life Team is when you know I started thinking, you know, we we need a song that kind of does this or a song that does this. Right. Um, I wrote a lot of songs, <laughs> and some of them we used. <laughs> right, way. exactly, and some of them we don't want to talk about. Um, That's right. Some of them we never got heard again. Yeah. You know? um, did you? Did you feel though when you started doing liturgical composing that 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 was kind of like wow your calling fulfilled that that's what you were being asked to do does that make sense You know what I would I would have to say absolutely because the first time that I heard an assembly sing a melody that I wrote yes was the most powerful thing um I just felt honored to be to be even a small part of that yes um, you know having grown up in church and and singing all the hymns in the, in the in the books for years and years and years, and suddenly I wrote something. Now everyone out there is singing, that, and it was just so powerful to me. Yes, that um, I just felt like, wow, I'm home. This is where I want to be. Right, right. So then you began. Can I say a career in liturgical composing? Uh-uh. I guess so. I mean, uh, you could say that. Um, I, I I hadn't worked full. I wasn't working full time for the church. Uh-huh. You know, at that point, I was just leading music at one mass um, and working in, in the youth ministry and helping there. Uh, but that's when it all started. You know, and, and I would just write a you know write a song for this occasion or write a song for this part of the mass. And as I said before, you know, some of them you know lasted, and some of them just kind of went yeah. you know by the wayside. Yeah. And the ones that lasted, eventually, people said, "Hey, can I get a copy of that?" And I would give them a copy of it. And, and we started making a CD, and and then it just kind of you know went from there. There was no ever set plan like, okay, now I'm going to do this, right. and this is going to be what I do. It just kind of grew on right. its own. So, the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the last big project that you did was the hymns, uh, yes, I guess, collection, the, the hymns, hymns collection. CD, yeah. So you you took traditional hymns, mm-hmm. um, and I use the word hymns. I don't mean, you know, how great thou yeah. art, but I mean, you know, I guess glory and praise are also hymns. Um, and you've contemporized them? Why did you want to do that? Or well, give them a contemporary feel? I don't, I don't feel? know. It was, uh, there, I looked at some of the hymn texts, and uh, it was just something I was just, I think at first I was just trying to do something different. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and there's some really beautiful texts out there. Yes, there are. And uh, one of the first ones I looked at was, um, I heard the voice of Jesus say, and I opened up the hymn, no one just kind of ignored the notes and looked at the lyrics and just started playing my own accompaniment and my okay. own melody. And um, it just kind of, uh, it just kind of grew in me. I was like, wow, this is really, this is really interesting. This is really fun. This is really moving. And, and so I just said, well, I'm just, I'm just going to do this and, and do my own musical setting of these yeah. texts. And then in a few cases, I added a refrain or added a bridge um, along the same lines. Uh-huh. And so it kind of, I guess it was my way of um, just giving a new approach to those texts and breathing some different life into yeah. them. You know, nothing against the old hymns. They're, they're beautiful as they are. I just wanted to do something different. Yeah, no, yeah, breathing new life in them, I think, is, is a good way to put it. Um, the song that we heard just before the interview, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy, you wrote yes. because, I guess you were inspired, or you, uh, because of the upcoming uh, Jubilee Year of Mercy. Tell me about that, and, and sort of why you wanted to write a song, and how this idea of mercy inspires you. Well, um, honestly... Mary Beth Anderson at, at uh, World Library yeah. called me and said that the managers and editors had gotten together and they decided, you know, we'd like to um, ask you to write a setting of There's a Wideness in God's Mercy, much like you did with the hymns album. Yeah. So they, World Library actually approached me on the idea. Okay. And, you know, asked me to you know, think about it, pray about it, see if you want to do that. And so I looked over the text and I was like, this is great. And um, it was one of those things where I would just, kind of turn on the voice memo on my phone when I was you know, in the car and just sing, you know, a melody to the lyric and, and right. finding something. And I, you know, I kind of worked on the melody for the verse quite a bit. Um, and I, th- I thought the text was just beautiful. There's a wideness in God's mercy, which is why that opening line, mm-hmm. you know, has that uh, interval jump. There's a wideness in... And mm-hmm. trying to really emphasize the text, especially on that first verse. Yeah. Get it just right. And then, you know, I wanted to take that and turn it around. And, you know, I added a refrain that sort of, it echoes that first verse, but it's a call to us to imitate, to try to imitate that mercy of God. So, let there be a wideness in our mercy. Um, It starts out, be merciful just as our God is merciful. Let there be a wideness in our mercy. Let there be a kindness in our hearts. Mm -hmm. Um, So, that's that's how that song came to life, and um, it it was just really, it was really a joy to be part of that, and um, to to take that th- those lyrics and, and add my own music to it. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting that you're you're it, it, in musically, not just lyrically, but musically. You're also there's a theology there, um, and of course a prayer. That, you know, we can be wide with God's mercy. I love that, but mm-hmm. we we can't be wide with with being just. God can be widely just, but we can't. But we can be widely merciful. Um, we can try. Uh, yeah, we can try. <laughs> we have to. Um, Ed, that's all the time we have, but it's been a real pleasure meeting you, and I, I love your music. I've been listening to your music for a while now, and and uh, thank you for breathing new life into some of those old hymns. Well, thank you so much for having me. You can learn more about Ed Bolduck at his website, edbolduckmusic.com. That's Bolduck, B-O-L-D-U-C, or Bolduc, Bolduc in French, edbolduckmusic.com. We're going to put that link on our site so you can find it easily. And all his music is published by World Library Publications. Here now is Ed Bolduck with Rock of Faith from his album, Awake to the Day.
Listening to Ed Balduck with Rock of Faith from his album Awake to the Day on a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Check out our website at saltandlighttv.org/slash radio. Now we go back to December 2015 when Pope Francis was in East Africa. Last Wednesday, Pope Francis arrived in Nairobi, Kenya, for his first apostolic visit to that country. The trip is part of a three-nation journey that includes Kenya, Uganda, and the Central African Republic. The first pope to travel to Africa was Paul VI, who went to Uganda in 1969. Pope John Paul II also visited Kenya in 1980 and again in 1985, when he also visited the Central African Republic. He visited Uganda in 1993 and returned to Kenya in 1995. Now, Pope Francis has been busy in Kenya and Uganda, as we heard from Emily earlier in the program. Um, tomorrow, he goes to the Central African Republic, where he will do a lot, of, a lot of the same things, including a visit to a refugee camp and meeting with the Muslim community at a mosque. He returns to Rome on Monday afternoon. But what is the purpose of this visit, and what does it mean for the people of those countries? To shed some light... Earlier this week, I spoke with Father Zachary King-Aru, a consolata missionary from Kenya. Father Zachary, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you. So, um, I think that a lot of our listeners are not very familiar with Kenya. They're not familiar with uh, Eastern Africa. So, tell me a bit about your country. Tell me about Kenya. Kenya is a country in East Africa which borders with the eastern side, Indian Ocean, uh-huh. then Somalia. Then in the north, we have Ethiopia and Sudan. Western side, we have Uganda. And southwest, there is Tanzania. Kenya has a population of about 40, 40 million. Mm-hmm. Yes. 44 million. So is it, compared to other African nations in that region, is it a fairly large country in terms of population? Yes, that, that's the, the East African. It forms the East African, uh, East African countries. And uh, we have the common language, especially in Tanzania and Kenya, which is Kiswahili. Swahili. That's a national language. Right. And, and of course, Uganda, sometimes they, they speak, but not, not as Kenya and Uganda. Right. And Kenya was a colony of, of British until 1963 when we got independent. Sorry, what year? 1963. 1963, you got your independence from... Independent from the British. From the British. Um, Yes. Is it, would you say it's mostly a Christian country? Christians, yes. Christians, that is Catholics and the Protestants. They form about 66%. 60%. 
Yeah, around 60%. Because okay. Catholics, they are about that percent. 30%. Yeah, about that percent. Now, I, he- I heard that your president is also mm-hmm. a baptized Catholic. Our president is a baptized Catholic, a practicing Catholic. Good. Good. Yes. Um, so what? And also, he said because he sh- the mother of the president is a very strong Catholic. The mother of the president is a very strong Catholic. Is... Yes, she's still alive. Okay, and is the he... previous president was also a cons- uh, was also a, ca- a Catholic. Okay, that is President Kibaki. Uh, Okay, and this new, yes. the president that you have right now. He he's been recently elected, right? He was elected on that on that of March nineteen uh, two thousand thirteen. Okay, and the next election will be two thousand seventeen. Okay, and what are the politics like in your country? The politics, uh, we have the, the the democratic politics. Okay, so it's a democracy, but... Some... It's a democracy. <laughs> we have the the many parties, political parties. Yes. And uh, strong, of course, uh, there is a strong, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, this opposition. Right. And and yes. and even though it's a democracy, I know a lot of countries they they're supposedly democracies, but of course they don't function. There's there's also poli- po- quote unquote politics. So is that in happening? my country it functions? Uh huh. Especially this uh, present with the new constitution, which was uh, uh, about five years ago or six years ago, when we got the new constitution. Uh huh. Uh, so at present we are we are putting in practice the the new constitution, and that's working well. Yes, it's working. Anyway, we are still uh, implementing. Right, you're still implementing now. Did, yes. Before the last two presidents, did you go through a period? Maybe after the British left, did you go through a period of 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 uh, rebellion or or dis disarray, political turmoil? Well, it was 2007, uh-huh. after the, the election, Yes, the opposition refused the, the results. Right. And there was a kind of uh, crash. Right. Which, uh, which lasted about, about one month. Okay. And yeah. so about 1,300 people died. And there were others who were displaced. Okay. Yes. And um, is there a large is there a large Muslim population in Kenya? It's about twenty five percent. Thirty five percent. Allowed. Allowed it twenty five percent. So it's about the but same. But what as I would say? Yes. The Christians and the Muslims live well together. Okay. We don't have conflict. Okay. That means even today, as Popo have uh, has arrived, yes, there are even delegation delegates from uh, different places who have gone to see the Pope. Yes, from Muslims. Yes. yes, yes. So we collaborate well because you find that there are some homes where there is a Catholic, 
Yes. A Protestant and a Muslim in the same family. Yes. Well, that's, yes. that's good because that is not the case in other countries in Africa. No. No. Um, do, what? So what you hear about uh, these people that, that attack? Yes. Those are the people, the terrorists who come uh, from Somalia. Okay. Because we have the Somalia who are Kenyans. Right. But uh, we don't believe that if they are Muslims. Okay. Those are terrorists. Yes, of course. They, they say that they're Muslim, but they're not really Muslim because they're terrorists. Yes. It's only that they, they wanted to, re, re, uh, to make some, uh, some people uh, feel, feel that they are Muslims against Christians. Right. Now, but when there is attack, there are also the Muslim leaders who condemn it. Right. And they go together with the, with the Christians. Right, of course. Y- yes. Now, the, the, um, you've had other popes. I know Pope John Paul II was in Kenya a few times. But, <laughs> yes. um, what is the significance, do you think, for your country that Pope Francis wants to go there and that he, he has visited? Well, the, before Pope uh, John Paul II, Saint, Saint John Paul II went three times. Yes. Uh, 2000? No, sorry. 1985. Yes. 1980 was there. Yes. And 1995. Yes. Now, as uh, this Pope, you had planned to go to Africa, mm-hmm. and the bishops, when they went to, to the Adelina, yes, to Vatican, they they proposed to him. And the country being important, there is, uh, I think, the important because of stability, of economical stability. Yes. And the political stability. Right. That made of, of make Kenya to be important the entrance to the even. The, you see, even uh, Obama was there this year. Yes. Yes. Uh, so that, that's why I think that Kenya is uh, those those two reasons I have mentioned. Right. Make people to to feel that to visit Kenya is, is important. Is important, and why? What is yeah, your to, to go to Africa? What is your hope then for the people of Kenya, and I guess for Eastern Africa, maybe even the whole continent? But to have Pope Francis mm-hmm. visit, what is what do you hope is going to come out of this visit? This visit is has two several things. One is Pope is a sign of hope. Yes. So he carries the message of hope. Yes. And uh, unity. Yes. And for us, the Catholics, uh, we would say that is uh, also is a, like a promotion of the vocations, uh, vocations of the religious pro- okay. uh, religious priests and uh, and the religious uh, religious communities. Right. Yes, but mostly for uh, peace and unity. Right. Yes. And that's very much needed in that region. Yeah, in the region, especially the regions where, where there's attacks here and there. You see, like, like uh, this, uh, Nigeria, there are also these Boko Haram. Yes. So oh, it's not yes. only in Kenya. So him is going to Kenya, uh, to Kenya, is taking the message of peace and the hope to the whole to the whole continent. Right. Well, we yes. we are watching very closely, and I think it's great that that the world now is is has his attention, 
in your country and in that part of the world. Father Zachary, thank you so much for taking a little bit of time today to speak to us. Okay. Take care. God bless. Thank you. That was a conversation I had with Kenyan Consolata missionary Father Zachary Kingaru earlier this week. For full coverage of Pope Francis's trip to Kenya, Uganda, and the Central African Republic, check out our website, saltandlighttv.org. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Audrey Assad, with Wonder As I Wander from her new album, Inheritance.
That was Audrey Assad with Wonder As I Wander from her new album, Inheritance. If you don't know who Audrey Assad is, well, she is a singer-songwriter and worship leader. Her debut album, The House You're Building, was released in 2010 and went on to become the Christian Album of 2010 on Amazon.com and the Christian Breakthrough Album of the Year on iTunes. For the last three years, she's been making music independently and doing quite well with three albums. That's one a year. She now has a new album that's coming out in February, Inheritance. And so we're very happy to have Audrey Assad joining us now on the program. Audrey, welcome back to the Salt and Light Hour. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yes. It's been a little bit of a while, so it's good to be back. It has been, but I mean, as long as you keep putting out albums every year, we can bring you back on the show. (laughs) That's great. Um, Great. Uh, one thing that I think a lot of people don't know about you, I mean, they can sort of figure out your last name, Assad. Your dad is an Arab. In fact, he is a Syrian yes. refugee. Um, mm-hmm. how, how has this whole current situation in Syria and the whole refugee crisis, how, how has it affected you personally and, and, I, and I think your music? Yeah, I um, have naturally been very, very emotionally invested in some of the current affairs of Syria. Uh, my father came here when he was 18, mm-hmm. and I was very much raised in a, in a, you know, an Arab American household. Uh, there's a lot about my childhood that is very closely tied yeah. to my dad's ethnic heritage, and um, so I care very much, and so I've been following very closely. Sort of, it's hard, it's such a mess, you know, it's hard to make sense out of it all, politically speaking, but in the end of and at the end of the day, I think my heart is really for the refugee, yeah. for their welfare and for their um, their safety and for their, you know, ability to hear the gospel and to sense it in our actions. And so the yeah. way it's really affected me is that privately I'm doing a lot of work uh, uh-huh. with refugee resettlement uh, agencies. And then publicly, I'm certainly speaking up for their plight. Right. Um, and I've been really meditating on the Beatitudes uh, in light of the the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, how so, so the music is definitely yeah. reflecting that. How, uh, can you, okay, how yeah. so? What, how do you connect the beatitudes with the refugee crisis? So I think um, really learning to look at people who are in such dire straits as being blessed because okay. of yeah. their poverty mm-hmm. and their need, and sort of saying, yeah. "This is I'm supposed to look at the refugee and not say, oh, this is a person worthy of my pity,' even if." They are right um, for circumstances, you know, beyond their control. But also, this is—I'm supposed to emulate something about the way this person is being forced to live. I should be choosing that life, yeah. a life of poverty, a life of sacrifice, all of those things. And so, it not only is incumbent upon me to help them, but it's also important that I learn uh, to be have the spirit of a pilgrim. Yeah, so, I yeah. think. You know, it benefits them, but it also benefits me spiritually. Yeah, yeah. You no, know, that's, and love refugees. Absolutely, that's a great way to look at to to see that that they're they are blessed. I I I think a lot of us are okay with this idea that yeah, no, we're, we are poor beggars in front of God, or we are pilgrims on a journey. But not a lot of us think that we are in effect refugees in this life, mm-hmm. as we hope to get mm-hmm. home one day. And and in that sense, I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's a really a, really an Advent message. Yes, also. very much so. Um, I agree. Would you say that this album, Inheritance, is about that idea or about refugees? 
So it definitely plays in. I think uh, several of the songs we chose to record, one being uh, I Wonder As I Wonder, yeah. was, um, several of the songs were written by people who were either sort of homeless or very, very poor, and that song is one. Uh, right. It was the original melody and lyrics were composed by a young girl, um, potential like a street kid kind of thing, and yeah. the guy who arranged it just kind of paid her a quarter for giving him the melody, and right. that's whatever ethics aside i you know the song is beautiful and i wonder as i wander is such a potent and poignant um refugee song and uh then we also chose to i also chose to record um jesus blood never failed me yet which was again you know composed by a homeless Mm -hmm. man on the street and i really thought oh hymns are for everyone you know they're global and and they cross class lines they're they're sort of like little song cathedrals, the dignity and the beauty that they lend to anyone who wants to sing them, you know, regardless of their status in society. So it definitely uh, impacted the choice to do a hymns record in general, and then some of the songs that we picked. Yeah, well, that's really interesting, because, I mean, of course, I'm sure everybody's asking you, I mean, the album is inspired by all these hymns that you grew up singing in a Protestant church. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, we heard Holy, 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 you mentioned Wonder As I Wander, How Can I Keep From Singing?, uh, be thou my vision. I mean, there's all these hymns that people mm-hmm. know. But they're not the most necessarily the most well-known hymns, but I think a lot of people will 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 resonate. They will resonate with a lot of people. Um, um, other than this refugee connection or the Beatitudes connection, was there another reason for doing an album with these, about hymns? Was it something about you connecting with your childhood? Very much so. I think growing up, I only sang hymns at church. No music. Uh, no think, No instruments. Really? So we sang out of the hymn book. Yeah. And three- and four-part harmony. Uh, And one of the things, and I'm not here to sort of make a statement about the state of Catholic music, but I will say I miss that. Right. Um, I miss the singing. I I miss people singing loud and knowing how and being raised in a tradition where everybody contributed. If you didn't sing, then the music didn't happen, you know? And I, I love that, and I think there's a lesson in that of just real active participation is is alive and well in a lot of these hymnal traditions and so i wanted to record some partially just as a way to introduce them to um my fellow catholics i think and you know again not to make some sort of statement but rather to say isn't this beautiful like isn't this a blessing you know maybe perhaps we could sing these songs no and that's good and i think a lot of a lot of artists i mean matt included matt mahar you mentioned him earlier that we you know they're trying to reclaim some of these hymns maybe rearrange them so that we can keep singing them and maybe that's what we need is the songbook to go with the with the album there you go yeah i'm actually i'm thinking about that (laughs) you know like maybe i need to put a little hymnal out yeah that's great Um, yeah. yeah, for sure. Now, um, there's a, not all, well, most of the songs are him, but I know that at least one of them was written by you, even unto death. And you t- told mm-hmm. me that that was a prayer that was written for the martyrs of the Middle East. Again, that connection with yeah. the Middle East. Tell us about that song. So uh, in February of 2015, there was a video released by the Islamic State soldiers uh, of them executing 21 uh, Coptic, Coptic Christian men yeah. on a beach. And I I watched part of it. I couldn't really stomach watching the actual execution, but I watched the beginning and I watched the end. And I was very obviously moved and gripped and sort of a little bit traumatized in a good way, you know, where I really felt a connection to them and to their families and realizing this is a very current problem, Mm -hmm. Um, real persecution, real martyrdom, 
you know, exists. And I looked at the men and watched their lips moving as they were sort of silently praying, just waiting for their executioners to carry out the execution. And I thought, I I could tell, you know, I, they're saying Jesus in Arabic and other such things. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, man, I, I really hope that's what I would be praying. And at the time, I, I had been going through, and you know, a very deep spiritual crisis. And I thought, what would I pray if it were me on the beach? Um, I knew I was about to die. Would I really be speaking the name of Jesus like that? And so I wrote, you know, all the verse and chorus to the song as sort of a prayer for them, but also like, may this be by the grace of God what, what I would pray if my life were about to be over. Wow, that's powerful. And it's a beautiful song. We're going to end the program um, with that song. Um, maybe to end, what... What would be, I mean, obviously you want people to listen to your music and to buy your album, but other than that, what is your hope for this particular album? I really pray that I can draw attention to um, to these certain issues, you know, the refugee crisis, the persecution of Christians and other religions as well in the Middle East, because it's not just them. Um, you know, Muslims are the yes. primary target of all Islamic state violence, so... There's a lot there that I think we need to, as Christians, be paying attention to and really developing solidarity. And so, again, like, I don't—of course, I have my own political opinions privately, but really, at the end of the day, I think that we can transcend that Mm -hmm. to come together in a sort of collective gestures of goodwill and peace and, you know, really enacting and, like, living out the gospel for these people. And so that's my hope. I hope I can be an agent of that. Um, by the sort of things I've chosen to write about and speak about with this record, I hope that I can do some good work for the kingdom in that way. Amen. And especially now that we're entering this year of mercy, I think that's also very mm-hmm, important. Absolutely. Yeah. Not I didn't even know that when I started making it. So yeah. It really I know. worked out. I was yeah. like, this is so perfect. Yeah. Providential. Anyway, thank you for doing, I mean, I always thank you, but thank you for what you're doing and we love your music. So I'm expecting thank more you. albums next year. Absolutely. I've got them in the works. Good. <laughs> you can learn more about Audrey Assad and pre-order her new album, Inheritance, at her website, AudreyAssad.com. And here now is Audrey with that song that we just spoke about, Even Unto Death, from her new album, Inheritance. Jesus, the very thought of you, it fills my heart with love, Jesus.
Audrey Assad with Even Unto Death from her new album Inheritance. And that concludes this special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. Remember to visit our website, saltandlighttv.org radio. If you have any questions, send them to me via Facebook or Twitter. Thank you for listening. I'm Deacon Pedro. Star, it-